God and the Lamb. It is good to be here. You may be seated just for a second. Uh, I want to say one, one little thing before I get started. First of all, thank you for the chance to be here, preacher. I appreciate it. And, uh, and secondly, um, I got here last week and then found out that all of y'all would inexplicably be a week late. <laughs> so I decided since y'all were late, I'd come back this week. <laughs> No, I did. I thought the meeting was last week. I appreciate. I apologize for the uh, uh, the, uh, the the inconvenience, but I did get to stick around with fellowship with Pastor Gravely, and that's always a precious thing. It's precious and a gracious and a godly man right there. And I enjoyed getting to spend some time with him and his family, and then be with them Wednesday night. And uh, good to be back with you again this week. I preached in Troy, North Carolina last week for a good or Monday and Tuesday of this week uh, for a good friend of mine, who uh, Brother Devin Madden, who stands six foot five, two hundred and seventy pounds. So I didn't feel like it'd be a good idea not to be there or anything. That was a uh, but I am glad I could be here today and tomorrow. Uh, John chapter 13, if you would please. John chapter 13. Boy, the meeting has been just exactly as it ought to be any time of year, but especially this particular time of year, it's just been all about Him, hasn't it? And that's exactly what it ought to be, I would think, and I hope I can just add a little bit to that this afternoon. And I, I just want to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and be an encouragement and a help and a challenge to his people. So John chapter 30, I'm going to read a little bit of a longer passage, so you just stay seated if you would please. John chapter 13, I'm sorry. John chapter 13, verse 1. John chapter 13, verse 1 through 20. I don't have one of those versions. So John, John chapter 13, John chapter 13, verse 1. John chapter 13, verse 1. The Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that when it has come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you so much for who you are and for all you've done. 
Lord, we love you and we appreciate you. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for another good day of life you've given us. We know that every day is a gift from your hand, and we don't take it lightly. Thank you for the chance to be in your house with your people from so many places across this fair land. Thank you that all have come together to worship you and exalt you, and thank you that you have met with us in the manner you have already today. I pray, Lord, that as I preach, that you'd help me. Empty me of self and selfish desire. May I glorify Christ and none else. And, Lord, I pray that you'd give me just the liberty to preach. And, Lord, the ease of speech to do so. May I have clarity of thought. Let me say everything you want, Lord, but not a single thing that you don't. And, Lord, for everything that you do, Lord, I promise we'll do our best to give you the praise and glory because we know that you are worthy. These things we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Right before what we read here in John chapter 13, Jesus sent his men, a couple of them, on a, a specific errand. He said, the Passover's come. We need, to, we need to have a place to eat this, so you two go into the city. You're going to find a man carrying a water pot, which was a little bit of an unusual thing. That was normally, but not always, the ladies that did that. So he said, when you see that, I want you to follow him. Wherever he goes in, ask the good man of the house, where is the guest chamber that I can eat this meal with my disciples? So they did as he asked. They went into the city. They found the man carrying the water pot. They, they went to where he went in at. They, they asked the man, where's the guest chamber? The master says he needs a guest chamber to eat. And the guest chamber was just a little hall or a, a little ancillary room attached to the house. It was never anything really impressive. And the master of the house said, you're not going to have a, a guest chamber for him. I've got a large upper room for him, uh, furnished and prepared, and that's where the master and you can eat this meal. So they come into this large upper room, furnished and prepared. Jesus knows he's got just a few hours worth of life left before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and then to Pilate's Judgment Hall and then to the cross to shed his blood for all mankind. This is weighing on his heart, and he very much wants to have this one last meal with his men. But you know the disciples well enough to know that they tend to get things wrong at the worst possible time. So if you read the chronology of what happens, if you do a good harmony of it, you find that as soon as they got there and started supper, they started arguing. And the argument was one they'd had before. The argument was, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, he's getting ready to go to the cross, and they're arguing about a throne. Jesus has to take time out of this really valuable time and deal with this argument that he's already dealt with one time before, at least one time before that we know of. He says, the lords of the Gentiles behave in such a manner. It's not going to be like that for you. He said, if you'll pay attention to me, I'm not even lording over you, though I am your Lord. He said, I am among you as one that serveth. In other words, he was not on an upper platform like masters of the feast normally were. He was sitting right there at the table on their level demonstrating one more time that he came to be with them and to serve them so that they could turn and learn to be with him and to serve others. Now after that happens there's a perfect segue to what comes next and John alone out of the gospel writers records what we have just read. This is to me one of the most remarkable episodes in the entire life of Christ. Can I tell you something? He did a lot of great things but the great things he did up to this point don't really define him in my mind. He, he walked on water, and I'm pretty sure none of us can do that. It's pretty impressive, but that doesn't define the Lord Jesus Christ. He raised the dead, and none of us can do that. 
But that doesn't really define the Lord Jesus Christ, at least not to me. He healed the blind, even those who were blind from birth. And that's impressive. None of us can do that. But that doesn't really define Christ. What defines Christ to me is what you see in John chapter 13. I want to work our way through the passage. And there's one thing at the end of it I really want to key in on. So let's go through it and then get to that point. Notice, first of all, an important timing. Verse 1, the Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now, there are two interesting points of timing here, but one of the two is just a factual point of timing. One of the two is far more than just a factual point of timing. So let's deal with the one that's just a fact, just the thing you need to learn to know first. We find this verse saying, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. We first of all see the feast of the Passover mentioned. And then we read after the feast of the Passover as you go through that they have sat down to a meal and that's where their disagreement springs up. Then we find the phrase and supper being ended and then it gets even more complicated when you go further into the text and find them eating yet again and then after that you find them doing what we call the Lord's Supper that gets just a little bit confusing in timing. So let me explain this. What you need to understand is that when you read about the feast of the Passover in this verse, it's talking about the entire feast of the Passover. We would call it the festival of the Passover. It's everything that's going to happen over the next 24 to 48 hours. From there you find out that they ate the supper that we read about in verse 2. Then after they finished the main meal, Jesus washed their feet and they went right back to the table for what we in the South call seconds. And we enjoy that, and we make no apologies for it. And then after they spend some time having seconds and spending some time fellowshipping, then Jesus instituted and acted out the Lord's Supper. So that's your chronology of what happens at the Last Supper. But while all of that's interesting, it's really not in, as important as what comes next by way of timing. The really important thing by way of timing to understand is when this verse says, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now can I encourage you not just to skim over those words because they're really important words. Let me remind you that if you've looked at the life of the apostles, you have no doubt found a lot of places along the way where had he chosen to, he could have chosen to not love them unto the end. Because they gave him a lot of reasons not to, just like we give him a lot of reasons not to. Uh, the apostles, for the most part, were fishermen. And if you read the chronology and the harmony of the Gospels, most of them had to be called away from the nets a minimum of two, sometimes three times before they finally got it, that he really meant it when he said, leave all this behind and follow me. And yet he loved them unto the end. Jesus goes to a city of the Samaritans. He wants to win them to the Lord. They seem to be rejecting him. So James and John helpfully say, Lord, uh, wilt thou that we call down fire from heaven? You want us to burn them like tater tots, Lord? And Jesus has to say, you know, I'm, I'm sort of here to save them from the fire. No, I don't want you to burn them up. Peter, at one point, literally pulls him aside. Jesus Lord, and rebukes him in front of everybody. All of them, not once but twice, chewed him out publicly over money. All of them in the boat scream at him, Don't you even care that we're dying? 
Then there's the knowledge that Peter is about to go and deny him three times and curse as he does so. And then there's the knowledge that Judas has already begun the process of betraying him. And yet the Bible says, having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. Aren't you glad he doesn't love the way that we love? Aren't you glad that even when we stumble and fall in sin, he still loves us? Listen, there's nothing better than being a born-again child of God because he never stops loving his children. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord he loves his own unto the end he loves and we love but he doesn't love like we love and we don't love like he loves I wish that we loved like he loves and I'm glad he doesn't love like we love he loves his own unto the end so we see an interesting timing but notice number two an intrusive presence look at verse two And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now if you look back at Luke 22.3, you find that Satan has already previously entered into Judas. Looking at the chronology is intriguing because it seems that for whatever reason, that arrangement did not last quite yet. Because here we find the devil putting it into the heart of Judas to go ahead and betray him, even though the process began in Luke 22. But then down in verse 27 of this chapter, we will find the devil entering into him for a second time. And this time it seems to be till the second that he dies. Now, I don't know if being once again in the presence of Christ after that first possession by Satan allowed Judas to change his mind and heart and briefly break free or if Satan just chose to withdraw for a time. But what I do know is, as we see in this verse, Satan may not have been in Judas at that moment, but he or at least his influence was there in the room and Jesus knew it. I want you to, sink, I want you to let this sink in. This for Christ is the last supper. This is... This is his last few precious moments with those he loves best on the face of this earth. And you'd think if anything was sacred and if anything was off limits, that this would be sacred and this would be off limits. But look at me and listen carefully. As far as the devil's concerned, nothing is too sacred and nothing is off limits. There is no line he will not cross in your life. There is no barrier he will not try to break through. There's no door he will not try to kick down. There's no trick he will not lay before you. Don't you ever let your guard down for one second because the devil never stops. So we see an interesting timing. We see an intrusive presence. But then number three, an incomparable knowledge. Look at verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Now you all know this, but but Jesus, the Son of God, was omniscient. And that means quite simply that he knows and knew everything at all times. In other words, Jesus knew what was coming to him. He wasn't caught off guard by the beating with the cat of nine tails. He wasn't caught off guard by having the crown of thorns beaten on his head with the reed. He was not surprised at having his beard yanked out of his face, nor was he surprised at at being spit in the face. 
He was not shocked to find his hands and his feet pierced and himself hung on the cross of Calvary naked for the world to leer at. He was not surprised, shocked, taken aback by any of this. He knew what was coming. But if that was all he knew, boy, that would have been a bleak day for the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us here that he knew a few other things that made it so much better. It first of all tells us that he knew that God the Father had put all things in his hands. Can I tell you this? Everything belongs to Christ. There is no exceptions. God hath given him a name which is above every name. That in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Jesus knew while heading for Calvary that he was also heading for a throne. He knew that God his Father had put all things in his hands. But he also knew, according to this verse, that he came from God. Now this is a really good bit of knowledge for the Lord because he spent his lifetime getting called a child of fornication. Spent his lifetime growing up being accused of being illegitimate and not really knowing who his father was. But there was never a moment that Jesus did not know exactly who his father was. The third thing we find he knew was that he was about to go back to God. They thought he was going to the grave. He knew he was going through the grave. He knew exactly where he was going. So we see an interesting timing, an intrusive presence, an incomparable knowledge. But then number four, we get to an incredible humility. And this is where I want to begin to get to where we're going in this message. This is to me, once again, everything that sums up the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, He, Jesus, riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Now what you may not understand is that this was a task that was late. This task was late by probably an hour or so, maybe a little bit better. You see, by the customs of those days, the first thing that was supposed to happen when people walked into a guest room for supper was that the lowest servant in the house was supposed to take a basin and fill it with water and and then take a towel and wrap it around his waist and then go one man by one man by one man and take everybody's sandals off and wash those dirty feet. That was the first thing that's supposed to happen. But as they walk in there that night, there's, there's an issue. And the issue is they walk in and Matthew looks over at Thomas and goes, I wonder why he's not doing anything. Thomas ought to know this is the first thing that ought to happen. Thomas, for his part, looking over at Philip and going, "Uh uh-huh, that's just like Philip. Look at him, sitting there, knowing feet need to be washed, not doing anything. Philip is saying, that Bartholomew sitting right behind me, I knew it'd be like this every single time. Everybody is thinking of or pointing to or waiting for somebody else and the Lord's just sitting back watching it all. Not saying a word. So after they eat, an hour or so in the proceedings, Jesus gets up and he goes to fill a basin with water. And I guarantee you, other than the water hitting the basin, it was so quiet you could hear a pin drop in there. Everybody has a strange feeling they may know what's coming next. Jesus gets a, gets a towel. He begins to wrap that towel around him. And without saying anything, he... 
he just starts going man by man and he gets to one of them and he, he takes off the sandals and he, the Lord, starts washing a pair of feet. Not say anything, just washing it. Just getting the dirt off and wiping it with a towel. My Bible doesn't tell us how many sets of feet he got to or through before he came to the one that would be guaranteed to say something. But there's one man there that was guaranteed to say something and it was almost always going to be wrong. Verse 6, Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Now, the inference from Peter is really clear. Uh-uh. Not happening. No, 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 no. You're not going to wash my feet. I love the way Jesus responded, verse 7. Uh, Jesus answered and said to him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Now Peter's asked a question, and the Lord has answered it, but not like he wanted him to answer it. Peter says, Lord, what, what, what are you doing? You planning to wash my feet? Jesus says in so many words, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing just yet. You'll know what I'm doing in a little while. In other words, he's saying, how many of you parents have said this to your kids? Just trust me for a little bit. Jesus is basically saying to Peter, Peter, just trust me for a few minutes. I promise you'll understand. You know Peter well enough to know, that's not going to fly with Peter. Verse 8, Peter said to him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Now, it's no secret that Peter said a lot of stupid things during the three and a half years he walked with Christ. But can we please at least give him credit that up until the very end, up until he denied him three times, he meant well every single time. He had the IQ of a bag of hair, but he meant well the entire time. And I rather suspect that if we have the respect and the honor for Christ, we say we do, that if we had been in his presence, there's a really good chance every last one of us would have said the exact same thing. Lord, you will never wash my feet. If anybody's going to have their feet washed, I'm washing yours. You are not going to wash mine. I'm not fit. I'm not worthy. Not going to happen. So Peter says something that really probably all of us would have said the exact same thing. But as always, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Verse 8, Peter said to him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Now, Peter was speaking of and thinking of just that moment and just the feet. But as is almost always the case with Christ, he was thinking of and focusing on so very much more than just the moment. When he said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me, he's not talking about feet at that moment. He's talking about hearts and souls at that moment. He's saying, if you expect to get into heaven, pay attention to the example that I'm setting here because I'm telling you, unless some washing has taken place, unless I have washed you from your sin, you do not have part with me. Listen to me, you do not get to heaven by the Ten Commandments. You do not get to heaven by confirmation or church membership or baptism or winning souls or being charitable if you are not washed in the blood of the Lamb. If there is not that moment where you bow your heart and repent of your sins and receive Christ, then you're not washed and you have no part with him. 
Look at verse 9. Peter may have been impetuous, but he's also correctable. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. It's hard not to like Peter. He's like a pendulum, man. It's all one or all the other. There is no mushy middle with Peter. One minute he's saying, you ain't never washing so much a toenail. Next minute he's saying, Lord, throw me under the spout where the glory comes out. Look at verse 10 and 11. Jesus saith to him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And, and you're clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, Therefore, said he, you're not all clean. Now, I want you to understand this. You know that the he is singular. Him is, him is singular. Jesus saith to him, singular. He, singular, that is washed, needeth not save wash his feet, singular, but is clean every whit. And, and ye, stop there. Ye's not singular. Ye's plural. He's expanding what he's saying here for a really good reason. He says, ye are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. Say, preacher, what does it mean? Please let me tell you what it means. There are some very good, helpful tools for you to understand your Bible out there, but they're not, they're not always right. The Bible is always right, but the tools aren't always right. I've got to go to Reese Chronological Bible. It's, it's pretty good to lay things out in order. But when it gets to the Last Supper, it, it botches some things pretty substantially. And one of the things that botches is it seems to infer that Judas is gone pretty early. And that's not the case. Judas is still here as Jesus is washing the feet. And that's why he looks at these men, one of whom is not clean, and says, Ye are not all clean. Judas, Judas is still there. Look at verse 18. He said, I speak not of you all. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. What's Jesus saying? What's, what's he doing? What's, what's going on right then? What's going on is Jesus is washing one set of feet after another. And preacher, at some point he gets to the most unlikely set of feet some point he gets to the feet of a guy named Judas. And just like all the rest, he pulls those sandals off. He begins to wash those feet. Judas has already made his deal with the devil. And Jesus, in humility and in genuine friendship, is just bowing one more time and, and showing kindness to Judas and, and loving Judas and taking care of Judas and giving Judas one more chance. Just like he'll do in the garden of Gethsemane a few minutes later when he says, friend, why are you come? Jesus is washing Judas's feet knowing that in a minute or two Judas is going to get up and leave the room and on those clean feet walk to the high priest and stand in front of the high priest with those freshly washed feet and say, I'm ready to betray him. Where's my payday? I cannot help but wonder if Jesus, as he was washing Judas's feet, I know he's omniscient. He knows everything past, present, and future. I know the song wasn't written for many, many, many more years, but because he's omniscient, I just can't help but wonder if just maybe, as Jesus is washing Judas's feet, 
He's either humming or singing. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Judas walks on freshly clean feet to high priest. His feet that Jesus just washed take him to do the most ungodly of deeds. But you know, he wasn't the only one there. Jesus washed Peter's feet that day. Knowing that Peter was very shortly going to be following at a very guilty distance and then be out on the porch instead of right there by him and then be denying him and then going out and weeping bitterly. And again, I just can't help but wonder, oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Peter, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. But you know, Judas, Judas wasn't the only one there, and Peter wasn't the only one there. There was another guy there, too. His name was John. John was going to use his feet to go all the way to the cross of Calvary. When everybody else was gone, he'd be, he'd be right there. He'd be, he'd, be, he'd be right there with those feet. I just can't help but wonder if... Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the sun on Calvary will be looking down to see. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. You see, the Lord has been so kind as to wash all of us that are saved. But what we do from that point on makes a pretty big difference and it usually starts right there preacher I've never known anybody drag themselves by their lips to a bar they usually use their feet for that I've never known Morgan, anybody handstand into the room to look at pornography it's usually the feet that carry them where are your feet going to carry you Jesus feet carried him into the garden of Gethsemane and then to the cross for you and I. John's feet carried him all the way to the cross to be a comfort to Christ. Judas's feet carried him to betray Christ. Peter's feet carried him to deny Christ. Where are your feet going to carry you? I'd like to be able to stand before the Lord one day at the judgment seat of Christ and be able to look down at my feet and smile. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your and for all you've done. We love you and appreciate you. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, we all have choices to make every single day. Lord, a lot of those choices are going to be coming down to where we decide to go, what situations we put ourselves into. Would you please help us to love you enough? There's no question how much you loved us. You loved us unto the end. Would you please help us to love you enough only and always to go all the places we're supposed to and only always to do all the things we're supposed to do? Lord, may we be found with John there at the foot of Calvary. May we be found in the judgment seat of Christ with a smile on our face or where our feet took us rather than bitter tears falling on those feet. Lord, just help us to be careful with our little feet. 
And God, for everything you do, we'll do our best, give you the praise and glory because you're worthy of that as well. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand.